Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Casey. Thank you. It's good to see everybody, and I know a number of you. I've said hello, and I'm now saying hello from the podium to both strangers and friends. I uh, want to thank Lucy for asking me to speak here. When I speak, even in smaller groups, and this group is you know, a larger one of the ones I go to, I get concerned that my story is fairly special. Special might be you know, an ego word, but unique. It really is unique as far as I know, and uh, you know, I get concerned that people won't relate to it and they won't get help from it. The flip side of that is that everybody's story is about pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. And the only question is, how has any individual experienced pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization? So here's, here's mine. I have almost died from food-related causes five times in my life. Only the last one was self-induced, and it was the last one that got me into program. I've been in program for nine-plus years. My mother had toxemia. I was an induced baby, uh, just barely above incubator weight, which was good because those were the days when they were over-oxygenating babies, and uh, I didn't have to be over-oxygenated. So I was poisoned in the womb. I then was born with something that... uh, the doctors, pediatricians called celiac. I realize in retrospect it couldn't have been because what I know about celiac is that it's an incurable disease, but it was probably its first cousin. I lived on soy milk and bananas only for the first two to two and a half years of my life. I uh, then was healthy until I was about six when I came down with an extreme case of hives, the kind of hives that you get hospitalized for, and then I was allergic to, oh, 300-plus foods, um, and um, outgrew those at 12. I have retained a couple of drug allergies, uh, but I have no food allergies, except that basically what I developed at 21 was a carbohydrate allergy because I became a type 1 diabetic a little bit older to become a type 1 diabetic. It's not as old as some. I know people who it's happened to in their 30s and 40s. But uh, that is, for the moment, an incurable disease. So that's my uh, metabolic incurable disease. And I, you know, have been through gobs of psychotherapy and including five-day-a-week psychoanalysis, which I'm in at the moment for the last few years. And, um, you know, all my problems are metabolic. The question is whether they're actually metabolic or whether they're symbolically metabolic. <laughs> you know, um, I have been truly loved by many, many people in my life. The question is whether I can metabolize it. You know, and, uh, you know, it's, um, but it's there. It's there. I'm either deserving or fortunate. Sometimes I think it's a bit of each, but, uh, but I've had a good life, apart from the fact that I've almost died many times. And although I think that's actually a good life, too. So I'll get to the fifth one, and I'll back off into uh, the that's a good life, too. Uh, the fifth one was just about nine years ago. It was July of 2001. I had joined my first 12-step program about a year and a half earlier. 
I'm a New York City girl, uh, born and bred. I learned how to drive in my 40s when I moved out here. That was traumatic. And I left behind everything I was comfortable with, familiar with, you know, you drop the name of some obscure book and people say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, out here you drop the name of some obscure producer, director, actor, and people say, oh, yeah, and I say, who? You know, so, I mean, it was really like a foreign world. I started with my first substance, started to get better in that program, and it is the, uh, you know, whack-a-mole game, or I think I'm mispronouncing that, but, what you know, guys know what I'm talking about. So I started to act out more with food than I had. I had acted out with food in high school, in college, not outrageously, after college, and I became a diabetic in my last few weeks of college. And pretty quickly, the reason I call myself a bulimic, and I am technically a bulimic, I mean, I'm classified bulimic, I've never stuck my finger down my throat, but it's exactly the same, because uh, as a uh, insulin-dependent diabetic, if I don't take my insulin, I don't metabolize my food. If I don't metabolize my food willingly, if I choose not to metabolize my food, it's bulimic. So I had figured that out pretty quickly, that I could not take my insulin. And I had done it for a meal. I had done it for a day. I had done it for, I don't think I ever did it with no insulin for more than a day, but I had taken minimal insulin for several days. And, uh, you know, it's astounding. It works. You become pretty thin. Diabetics, type 1 diabetics, used to basically die of starvation. So um, I put on weight in program. I probably weigh about 10 or 12 pounds more than I weighed when I joined. I'd like not to, but there's only one way to do that, exercise more, eat less of both, and so far I haven't done that. <laughs> what happened in 2001 is that after I put down my other substance, I didn't want to feel my feelings, and I was feeling my feelings much more. So I call these rooms anesthesia anonymous. What happened is that I was then really doing my binging. And what happened when I binged is I didn't want to look like somebody who was eating the amount of food I was eating. So I was taking very little insulin. Well, after not a day or two or a day or two a month or a day or two every other week of that, but after days and days and months and months of that, uh, I basically flipped the switch. It is a metabolic switch you can flip. And uh, you don't always come out the other end. Um, so I was on vacation in New Hampshire. When we lived in New York, my other life was in New Hampshire. We had a lot of friends up there. spent a lot of time there. My husband couldn't come on that vacation with us. Uh, us. It was my daughter, me, my daughter who was then 14, and uh, my father. And uh, we landed... The plane landed. We went to where we were going to spend a night before we went to this island we were going to off the coast. And um, I was deathly ill. My father said I was vomiting. I was nauseous beyond belief. My father said, what should I do? The next morning I said, you should call 911. Now, I don't call 911 very easily because I have been sick so much in my life. It takes being pretty sick for me to say call 911. I am not a hypochondriac at all. In fact, I belittle everything. So um, I said, you're calling 911. So I went to this hospital in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where the doctors had heard about these things but had never actually seen a case this bad. And I was mostly in and out of consciousness. So what I've been told by my dad, who died about a year and a half ago, maybe, but what I was told is that 
he asked the doctor if I was going to live, and the doctor said, I don't know yet. We'll know in the next 24 hours. Now, I knew I was going to live because I'd actually been sicker at diagnosis. So I wish I was more conscious to tell him that because he had to live with Wondery. When I got out of that hospital, finished the last little bit of that vacation we were all having, there were still a couple of days left, I came back to Los Angeles. And uh, I knew about Overeaters Anonymous. I had never been to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And I called up Central, God bless Central, and I said, uh, you know, for pre-internet days, and I said, could you mail me a meeting directory, please? They did, and I went to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. I was one of the people who, in the meetings where they say, has anybody new come in since the meeting began, raised my hand because it was at a location that I had a bit of a hard time finding. And I started working this program. This is the disease that's almost killed me. None, I'm, I'm in four 12-step programs. Nothing else has come close to killing me. This is the one that's almost killed me. I um, started working it pretty hard. Got a sponsor. I burned through sponsors. I have a sponsor who I don't call often now for the last several months. I had one who I adored, adored, and we worked together for a couple of years, and then she moved out of town and just wasn't going to work. I have sponsors in my other programs. My, my line about being in multiple programs is the credits don't transfer. The credits don't transfer. The study habits help, and they help, can help a lot. I started working in a pretty hard program. Within a few months, I got abstinent, but somebody who was taking a trip tonight said, uh, you know, how do you define abstinence? And it is a strange room, because I know about the gray sheet rooms, but I didn't enter in the gray sheet rooms. So people define their abstinence in different ways. And I, my first abstinence was three meals a day, nothing in between except as required by blood sugar. I mean, if my blood sugar is low enough, I need to eat. And I always carry tiny boxes of raisins because when my blood sugar is that low, I'm pretty unaware of how much I need. But I know exactly what one little half-ounce box of raisins will do for me. So depending upon my blood sugar, I calculate and eat two, three, four, however many I need of those. That didn't work for more than seven months. I couldn't keep that absence for more than seven months, three day, three meals a day, nothing in between except as needed blood sugar. Then I was defining it in various other ways that aren't or worth going through. But I would, I never got more than seven months. I would get three months, five months, three weeks, five weeks. I would also never go out or break whatever, however it's finding my absence, for more than a day, two days. But I was feeling like a total failure, an absolute total failure, because I just couldn't get it. And I didn't want to feel like a failure if I really wasn't. And I, I've got measurements that I don't wish on any of you, but I've got measurements of just how well I'm doing. Because I'm a diabetic, I've got, you know, tests that will give me my average blood sugars and things like that. And I was doing 90% better than I'd been doing before I walked in the rooms. So... You know, that in combination with feeling like a failure felt like a disconnect. You know, uh, that didn't, why was I, I didn't want to feel like a failure if I didn't have to feel like a failure. So, um, I finally was, it finally was suggested to me by a sponsor that I try to come up with an abstinence that I could keep that was nonetheless real. 
you know, it wasn't eat whatever you want and, uh, you know, just don't feel guilty about it. I mean, that could be somebody's abstinence, but, you know, I don't think that quite makes a lot of sense. So um, my current abstinence, which I celebrated four years in early October, uh, my current abstinence is a bulimics classic abstinence. I have for four plus years not run purposely high blood sugars. I'm not telling you I haven't run high blood sugars. I haven't run high blood sugars that I have caused. You know, uh, if I eat it, I take insulin for it, I metabolize it. And that's a pretty good thing. Most of the time, I eat things that should be on my diabetic diet. Sometimes I don't. If I don't, thank you. If I've had, you know, my, my carbohydrate content should be quite low. Uh, if I uh, have eaten more carbs that day, I'll take insulin for it. To back up for the story when I was saying it's kind of good to have almost died several times in my life, uh, in my early 20s, um, I've been married a long time. I actually started to live with and then a few years later married my husband in my early 20s. But my boyfriend before my husband was a much older man, sweetheart. He ended up being a friend of ours. He's now dead. He uh, was in his late 50s. I was in my early 20s. And um, he said, uh, you're really lucky that you're a diabetic. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> like, what's going on? And he said, well, you really understand mortality in ways that in our world, we're not talking about living in, you know, a place where people really generally do die of malnutrition. In our world, he said, you understand mortality at an age where most people in the world we live in don't get it till their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And you can prioritize your life and figure out stuff. It's absolutely true. I'd have given it up in a second, but it's true. When I first walked into 12-step rooms, it didn't take long to figure out that the reason I can relate so comfortably to most of you is that there's nobody in here who stays, who isn't here as a tourist, you know, who uh, hasn't understood their mortality. I mean, it might not always be understanding your physical mortality, although I think in many instances it is, but it's at least understanding your spiritual mortality. You know, it's at least understanding that you've walked in here close to death on some kind of basis. And it's a bit of a miracle that we've come back. So what do I do about working the steps? I mean, that's I, I only know how to live life two ways, with steps or with anesthesia. That's it. Uh, those are my only alternatives. So uh, step one was real easy. I, I say I came in here off a hospital bed close to coma. Oh, in that hospital bed, because I knew the steps from my earlier program, I was curled in a fetal position, really feeling like I was going to die, but knowing I wasn't. And um, I worked step two and three for about a day and a half. I mean, I was just lying there. Uh, me and God, that was it. Curled in a fetal position, uh, working steps two and three. And because uh, I didn't have any problems with one at that point in this program. But I figured, let's let's do two and three. And they were going to make me feel better spiritually. I mean, I wasn't going to feel better physically until I was. But at least I could feel better spiritually. So uh, step one was real easy. Step two wasn't that hard because I knew I was insane. My version of a higher power, I am one of those people who does not believe in a creator God, who does not believe in 
you know, some kind of parental God. I do believe in the universe. I do believe in human connections. I do believe in love. I do care that the oxygen molecule that I am breathing in right now in five billion years might be on the planet Pluto. You know, I mean, I care about that kind of stuff. And uh, so I also know that for whatever reason, connections matter, and I've been lucky enough to have them. I mean, as I was saying, for a long, long time, I thought they were kind of a miracle in my life. Whether I thought I deserved them is a different question. But I had them, and I didn't pretend I didn't. Step four, my step four in this program took a while. My step four in this program was with that uh, sponsor who's now out of town, who I speak to seldom, but sometimes. And... Um, I was finally handed, I'd done other fourth steps in other programs, and I was finally handed the ACA fourth step, which if none of you have ever, if you haven't seen it, some of you probably have, literally I think has about 700 questions. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a life story program. I actually don't believe in life story fourth steps. I believe in fourth steps right out of the big book. You know, if I don't resent it today, I don't have to tell you about it, except that Consciously, I thought I had very few resentments. You know, I mean, I had unhappinesses. I had, you know, I had a sponsor once when I said, I, I don't have very few res- I have very few resentments. She said, well, write a list of everything and everybody that's ever annoyed you. I said, that's a big list. You know, I mean, you know, that's a big list. And it also felt absurd because I didn't think it meant annoyed. So I thought, let's try this. And it took me almost a year to tell my life story. I actually began it on vacation in a rental apartment in Europe and finished it in my home. She knows as much about me as people who know me really, really well, and she doesn't know me that well. I mean, we don't have any relationship outside of this, not none, but almost none, outside of this program. But I told my story. I told a story that many of us tell things that you wouldn't want to just be found if you dropped dead the next day. There are things you don't want on your fourth step. So when I saved it in my computer, I made sure to not have those in there, you know, because you never know if you drop dead the next day, right? Fifth step I gave to her. I spent 2000, 2010, now almost the end, I think I spent, I know I spent, from about mid-2008 to about... A few months ago, well, actually, it's not, I'm not telling how I worked the steps. Six and seven, I think six, step six is the hardest step in the whole program. I thought so in all my programs. I don't know if it is, it is for me. You know, uh, there's a little contradiction in there, right? It's talked about in the 12 and 12. Uh, all entirely, uh, on the other hand, uh, we're not trying to do anything perfectly. I mean, I think of it as Aristotle's unmoved mover. You know, it's... Um, you know, straining with every uh, bit of your body to do what you can do, but you know you won't get there. And um, I figured out what my uh, character defects are. I do suspect I'm going to die with all or most of my character defects. (laughs) What I do think is that the reason they use different words in 6 and 7, and 6 is character defects and 7 is shortcomings, is because I think the shortcomings are acting out on my character defects. I don't have to act out on my character defects, and I seldom act out on my character defects anymore. There are a couple of people in the room who know me really well, and about seven years ago, 
a little more than seven years ago, uh, my in-laws moved in to live with us. And my father-in-law died about a year and a half ago. Um, sweet man, difficult, but I mostly simply loved him. My mother-in-law, who is uh, still alive and lives with us, is one of the most neurotic people I've ever met in my life. She's a Holocaust survivor. He was, too. She was in the Warsaw Ghetto at nine, way before she lived with us, way before we lived in the same city. I figured out that the best way to think about her, but that's, it's easier to think about it a week a year than every day of the year, is that she's a really nice nine-year-old. She just got stuck at nine. You know, and, uh, but living with a really nice nine-year-old who in fact is 81 is difficult. <laughs> you know, when she first moved in, it was especially difficult. I did the old freedom from bondage thing. You know, that was the only way I was going to do it. And it says, pray for them for two weeks and your resentments will be gone. Well, in, my, in this case, it took five months. But I prayed for her every morning on my knees for five months. I prayed for her to have everything she would want. By the way, I begin my days every morning praying to a God I don't believe in. That, I think, is fine. You know, I mean, uh, I once was, for a couple of years, extremely religious, seriously religious in my adolescence. I was raised by proselytizing atheists, and uh, my mother actually has said um, that, you know, if you believe in God, you must be stupid, one of those people. In, uh, when I was an adolescent, I got baptized, went to church every day. Uh, I was a real Thomas Aquinas convert. You know, I just, I, just, I just bought into that stuff. And I think it's still pretty interesting, good stuff. You know, take, take Catholicism and bring it on to Aristotle and have a good time. And, uh, you know, but, well, that is what it is. It's not, you know, that is what it is. And so what happened is that after praying for her for five months, I did not resent her. She still, talk about annoying, she still annoys me. I don't wish her ill. I did wish her ill. I haven't wished her ill for years and years and years. So um, eight and nine, I harmed mostly uh, the people who really care about me. Uh, making the list wasn't that hard. My husband, who adores me, uh, he doesn't want me to die young um, if I don't have to. Um, I terrified my daughter who was on that vacation with me, and she actually had just gotten over about forgiving me about my other problem, and then I did it again. Um, Ten, uh, I did the AEIOUs. You know, if you don't know what they are, uh, have you been abstinent that day? Have you exercised that day? What have you done for yourself? What have you done for others? Uh, what have you uncovered? It's AEIOU and sometimes why. Well, why is yippee, but I almost every day have something that I've enjoyed, so I don't actually do the why, because that's not my problem in life. I'm not a depressive type. And uh, 11, I've talked about prayer. I, I also meditate not long. Uh, I go to some meetings that include meditation, which is great. And 12, I've got sponsees in all my programs. No, that's not true. I've got sponsees in three out of four of my programs. One of them I only recently joined. And I talked to a lot of people. You know, I was asked to share. The answer was, of course. Um, to say I'm in a helping profession is not quite true. It's not a traditional helping profession. But I could. But what I do for a living is I connect people for a living. So, uh, you know, if I think it would be good for you to know somebody, I make sure you know somebody. And uh, I'll open it up for questions. Okay. My relationship with my daughter. 
Let's start with, again, something I think that most people don't have who have children. My daughter's adopted. When we adopted her, I didn't think that that was much of a big deal. I learned when she was seven, I was blindsided. That's a big deal. Seven's about the age that adopted children really start to grieve more. They grieve from the time they're separate, taken from their mother. You're grieving. But, uh, but they start to grieve more because there really are differences. For instance, one time I found out, because we were looking at the papers, that her birth mother's favorite leisure time activity was motorboating. My daughter's a superstar motorboater and has been since the age of eight. She was, like, tooling us around the Peconic Bay one summer. And we said, oh, my God. Uh, you know, so so we already love each other and have biological disconnects. You know, so that's difficult for both of us. From that moment, I started to be much more tolerant of my feelings, like that I really couldn't relate to her as much as I would like to, because I said, okay, I really can't. You know, it's not it's just we don't do we don't do a lot of the same things. My daughter has forgiven me for uh, what I did to her on that vacation and what I did to her in terms of removing my spiritual connections to her by wanting to be anesthetized. She really has forgiven me. My daughter has a daughter. My daughter's 25. She has a six-year-old. Um, my therapist describes it as your daughter had a very difficult adolescence. She has some permanent things, several tattoos, and a child. I love my granddaughter. Um, she's now, my daughter's now engaged to be married. She was married to the father of her, of her, her daughter, um, but they're down divorced. She's now engaged to be married to a man who's a sweetie. And, uh, he found her, they went to high school together. They found her, he found her on the net again. And, uh, you know, she is really lovable and people love her. So thank you. What is the school you have the most resistance working? It sounds like a sponsor, doesn't it? Uh, you know. How do I get over? Well, so far I haven't gotten much over the resistance. My current sponsor at the moment, I call that promptly about every five or six weeks. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I have a sponsor in my two other programs, so I call that person, I, but, but the credits don't transfer. Uh, the, you know, and um, how do I get over it? I don't know. Maybe I'll have to talk to you about that afterwards. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Thanks for Could you talk a little bit more about your... Relationship with your higher power. Sure, I really do feel connected uh, at my when when I'm relaxed enough and spiritually in tune, which is most of the time. I really do feel connected. Here's a funny story. Several years ago, I was just feeling disconnected. I don't even remember exactly why, but I was feeling disconnected from California. Again, as I say, I felt so displaced when I moved here. And I was feeling disconnected. I went into my garage, which has a cement floor, stood there and imagined roots growing out from under my feet and getting roots in the California soil. I mean, you know, um, my God is just uh, that, uh, you know, people care and I care. It's that simple. I don't think it's, as, by the way, as satisfying as a creator parental God. But it's what I've got. Uh, you know, someday somebody gives me back. I once had a creative parental God. I'll take it. Yeah. Hi. Can you describe how you do your work, your reading, and your writing, and call? Um, you know, carve out time, or do you just 
have a special time of day? Well, I begin, I begin my day, uh, as I say, on my knees, uh, first, second, third step prayers, praying for some particular things. Uh, yesterday was a day that I ate some things I didn't want to, so I asked for the ability to not do that today. So far, so good. I uh, read five different spiritual books in the morning, none of which are very long. You know, four out of those five are daily readers. One of them, I just worked my way through the pages. The things I choose to read, I call spiritual. And this may, I'm sure this isn't program approved, so I won't drop particular names. But, um, you know, I read some pretty good stuff. I choose to read things about real relationships. I choose to read, uh, you know, people living connectedly. Uh, and I see it. Uh, there's certainly unapproved literature that is still 12-steppy that I could talk about, but not on the podium. So thank you, Walter. My good friend Walter. Hi, Walter. Hi, Casey. Great to see you. Uh, meditation. Do you have a meditation practice? Barely, but yes, because uh, among the meetings I go to <laughs> regularly is a 7 to 8 a.m. meeting that includes five minutes of meditation. So when I go there, and that's three or four days a week, I get in that five minutes. And I'd say three or four times a week as well, but it might actually be the same day. If I think I can do it, I um, probably put in three or four minutes before I even get on my knees. I'm still in bed. I'm sitting up. One other quick one. You mentioned Aristotle. What was that concept of his in in dealing with resistance in reality? Oh, um, the... The unmoved mover, he's talking about the planets in, the, in, in, in getting towards it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes? When you, first, when you first stopped drinking, what tools did you use to get you out of your own head? Um, I got my sponsor in that program on day one. I'm not sure if this is okay to talk about in this room, but I got my sponsor in that program on day one who bought, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. We have a lot of things in common, and I called her often at the beginning, often, and we love each other, and we still call each other often. Well, I take it back. I still call her often. She calls me sometimes, but we have many things in common. She's got a long-standing, solid, good marriage. She's got a child who's got addiction issues. She's got, uh, you know, sometimes money's good, sometimes money's bad, and that might actually be the best way to describe it. Sometimes she's fearful about money, sometimes she's not, you know, um... I, the way I went into that program was my daughter, in fact. My daughter basically said, Mom, I'm going to have nothing more to do with you. So that was easy because I didn't want to lose my daughter. I mean, actually, it wasn't going to be a custody issue, but she wanted nothing more to do with me emotionally. If you don't deal with that, I'm, I'm, I'm history. Yes? Thank you very much. You mentioned on the fourth step that you started, and then initially that you thought you were very resentful, but then it took you two years to So, when you, when you started exploring, you mentioned annoyance, people annoyed, so did resentment expand into as you start to get through? You know, no, I actually didn't do the annoyance thing, although I did some of them. Okay. I did, you know. But what I ended up doing, sponsor-directed, was that ridiculously long ACA fourth step. So basically, I just told my biography. And all I know is I've been abstinent for four years with an abstinence that I think is, you know, legitimate. It's not ideal. But, uh, you know, if I eat it and I metabolize, it works for me. (laughs) Yes? Which defect did you find you had the most resistance and kind of... Um, working 
like which defects was the stickiest and like what actions did you take to kind of I know you said you were going to die with them but what actions did you take in order to kind of walk through them and have that kind of contrary action kind of the fear of loving people I really love you know I mean totally loving them totally being I mean, took psychoanalysis too you know, uh, totally being dependent upon somebody who, if that person said, I don't want anything more to do with you or died or something like that, I think I would be beyond bereft. And the courage to do that, I think that takes a lot of courage. The kind of, the kind of courage that, you know, infants have with mothers, except they don't call it courage. Thank you.